Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 59, Wallace Keefe I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer, son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. In this episode, Wallace Keefe, Little Red Notes, and Lex Luthor's Confession. This show dives deep into the Trinity Trilogy for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. This is a previously recorded but unaired episode from July 2016. I held it back because all the broad analysis and hope went into the Monument episode, and all that was left was a really specific dive into the psyche of a man at the end of his rope. We had a string of Suicide Squad and Supervillain episodes, so I kept putting off putting out this episode on a supporting victim character. But I think it's good to go now. After an episode on active empathy, maybe that's the right mindset for trying to get Wallace Keefe beyond a superficial surface level. It doesn't hurt that it's all already ready to go, and that it's much more concrete and concentrated on the diegetic and logistics of the action in contrast to the conceptual stuff last episode. So I don't think I'm going to mess with this episode or record any endnotes for it. If we catch up after this, it'll be in the next brief. Anyways, without further ado, our recording takes us back to a time above, a time before, two years ago. <laughs> this episode addresses some of the confusion surrounding Wallace Keefe and the timing of Lex's plans and intentions. With respect to Suicide Squad, being busy has kept me from getting hit with the marketing blitz, so I'm just going to go with that and watch it fairly fresh. Of course, all my intentions are subject to change, but nothing planned until the film premieres for now. Incidentally, anyone else out there researching upgrading to 4K? <laughs> so Wallace Keefe and the uncashed checks seem to be an area of confusion where a lot of people are unsure of what happened where people are either unsure of what happened, or maybe they've made some assumptions without completely thinking those through. But I'm Doc, your DC Films apologist, and I'm here to tell you that if we think things through and chew our food, we can find answers and insight, and one interpretation is thematically richer, more logical, and ultimately elegant than the other. Is it necessary? No, not at all. But by now, you ought to know that this show isn't about need or necessity, but completely unnecessary celebration. <laughs> so if you're on board with grinding the nitty-gritty until it's buttery smooth, press on. We'll start with what we know, as fact, objectively observed in film. Then, we'll explore the assumptions that each theory requires. For a moment, do your best to empty your mind of assumptions and insistences on what you think might has to have happened behind the scenes. And let's review what we know to be fact. Because ultimately, we're going to be talking about different sets of beliefs springing from the same set of facts or evidence. And it's the same kind of thing a judge or jury has to take into consideration when weighing the facts of a case. The prosecution and the defense 
since both use the same facts to tell two different stories, two different theories of the case, and it's up to the jurist to decide which narrative makes more sense. More on that in a bit. First, let's start with the uncontested evidence. Let me read you a concise summation of Keefe's story from The Art of the Film. Quote, while he was a security guard at Wayne Financial in Metropolis, Wallace Keefe became a double amputee after being gravely injured during the Black Zero event. The incident left him a broken man with little to live for except for one thing. He's built up all this hatred and aggression towards Superman, says actor Scoot McNary. He's got newspaper clippings all over his wall. He just wants to take Superman down because he's lost his legs and he's lost his family and he's lost his job and his life sucks. He blames Superman for it. It's a fixation that eventually leads to Keefe testifying at a fateful hearing before a committee of the U.S. Senate. Back to our facts, we also know Bruce Wayne helped him out of the rubble. Mr. Wayne! I can't put my legs! I can't put my legs! We need help over here! Help me! Like, I can't put my legs! You're gonna be okay. You hear me? Wallace? What do they call you? Wally? Huh? You're the boss, boss. We know he's confined to a wheelchair, that he has a daughter, that he deeply resents his condition, and Superman. He can't urinate standing. He perceives his wife as walking out on him. He made me half a man. My wife walked out on me. I can't even piss standing up we learn that Bruce Wayne has set up a Black Zero Victims Fund, which issues a monthly check to Keefe. These checks are not cashed. Then after the African incident controversy which makes the news, Keefe goes to Heroes Park and vandalizes the Superman statue with false god in red spray paint. Keefe's arrest is broadcast on the news where he shouts, I work for Bruce Wayne. Hey, are you guys watching this? Emergency responders quickly created a precautionary perimeter around Heroes Park while they brought the man down from this beloved monument. The suspect has been identified as Wallace Vernon Keith. I work for Bruce White! I work for Bruce White! He'll be arraigned on charges of vandalism, resisting arrest, and the felony charge of making terrorist threats. That carries up to 40 years in prison. Poor son of a bitch. Metropolis News 8. After Lex's import license is denied, Keefe is mysteriously bailed out and returns to his home to find Lex waiting with a motorized wheelchair. Who the hell are you? Just a man. Yeah? Well, what do you want? To help you stand for something. Keefe is next seen in Senator Finch's office, clean cut, asking to confront Superman. Let me face him. Keefe is seen again at Senator Finch's side during a press conference. And finally, Keefe is interviewed just prior to the Senate hearing. The Senate hearing is expected to get underway in any minute now. And of course, the big unknown in all of this is, will Superman show up? That is what they're really waiting to see. Mr. Keefe, Mr. Keefe, Soledad O'Brien in the moment. Quick question for you. You're heading in to meet with the senators. What will you tell them? Um, I've come here to tell them to wake up. You know, this is flesh and blood. Um, you know, he, he has delivered a war here. And, and this, this is what war looks like. I have nothing. There are plenty of people, sir, who would say he's their hero. Hey, he is not a hero. 
Simultaneously with the hearing, Bruce learns that the monthly checks are returned, scrawled in red notes addressed to him. Bruce receives an envelope for that day. Greg, why hasn't he been getting our checks? He is, Mr. Wayne. He gets a check from the Victims Fund every month. He returns them. Financial who lost both his legs in those horrific events in Metropolis that happened two years ago. It remains unclear at this hour whether or not Superman will make an appearance. Why haven't I seen this? I'm sorry. I'll get to the bottom of it. Immediately after the bombing, Bruce finds that the envelope contains a newspaper clipping about the devastation of Wayne Tower with the red note, You Let Your Family Die. Keefe is identified as the bomber on the news, and the FBI find evidence of his involvement at his apartment. Capitol Police are confirming to CNN that the suspected bomber is Wallace Vernon Keefe. Now, these sources have gotten the explosive device into the hearing by concealing them inside his wheelchair. Now, one FBI official familiar with this case told me they found, quote, a jackpot of bomb-making materials inside Keefe's apartment. What they need to determine now is whether he had any help in the planning and execution of the bombing. Lois sees that report on the news and decides to investigate. Lois visits the apartment and deduces that Keith did not intend to die and accordingly was unaware of the bomb. He didn't know he was going to die. He just approached Reese. Lois and Jeanette deduce Lex is behind the bombing based on the metal. The wheelchair and the bullet from the desert were made from the same metal. After kidnapping Lois, Lex makes references to LexCorp metals. Now the secret to the height is the building material. It's light metals which sway a bit in the wind. And you know something about LexCorp metals, don't you, Miss Lane? Lex makes reference to the Red Notes, the bombing, and the last Red Notes message to Superman. Ripe fruit, his hate. Two years growing, but it did not take much to push him over, actually. Little Red Notes, Big Bang, you let your family die! Okay, so those are the essential facts that any theory of the case has to line up with. It's important to pause and distinguish between immutable facts and malleable interpretations or assumptions. A persuasive theory won't contradict the facts, but can present alternative interpretations, even inconsistent ones. For example, fact, Jack legally drove through the light. Interpretation, Jack drove through a green or yellow light. The theory that Jack drove through a yellow light is inconsistent with Jack driving through a green light, and in actual fact, it had to be one or the other. But it's fair and reasonable to propose both theories in the alternative because neither contradict the fact Jack legally drove through the light. And note that the interpretation is also embedded with countless unspoken assumptions. Likely, you imagine that Jack drove a car on a road in the U.S. through a working traffic light. Less likely, you considered Jack at a broken light or considered more outrageous interpretations like Jack performing stunts in a spotlight or going through the light of a flaming hoop. Ambiguity opens up interpretation. Based on our given facts, we use deductive, inductive, or abductive reasoning to infer the most probable rules, causes, or effects. We won't go into the differences in this episode, but I'll put a link in the show notes which elegantly illustrates the difference with diagrams in about four minutes. Note, we want to infer what's probable or likely to imagine the traffic light before we go to the flaming hoop. We're not being skeptical for the sake of skepticism, but trying to get to the 
heart of the confusion. For example, it's never explicitly stated that the woman in the photo is Keefe's wife or the young girl, his daughter. But since that assumption or inference is mostly irrelevant to the issue, it's okay to go along with a conclusion that isn't explicitly stated rather than create a controversy where there was none. It's an application of Occam's razor, that when we hear hoofbeats, we imagine horses. Even if the same sound could be generated by a trained monkey clapping two coconuts together, a stride a zebra galloping in silent slippers. It's not complexity for its own sake, but seeking to answer an incongruity or address a probable reality. I'm pointing all this out in pedantic fashion because it's incredibly important to recognize when we've started to make leaps in intuition and logic versus something explicitly and immutably established. To catch ourselves when we've started to think fast and use heuristics, rules of thumb, and cognitive biases which make us fall into fallacies. For example, Lex says, Ripe fruit his hate. Two years growing, but it did not take much to push him over, actually. Little red notes, big bang, you let your family die! In fact, Lex never explicitly says, I provoked the Batman, I did it for two years, I did it by writing notes on return checks, I did it with the Senate bombing, and I am responsible for the final note saying you let your family die. Instead, most of that is just reasonably inferred. However, are those particular and specific inferences necessary or even supportable? I don't think so, at least not without added nuance. And we can really start to parse the statement, context, intent, and interpretation, but that's better saved for the end once you understand both theories and can interpret it under both lenses. So I have four big goals for this episode. Goal one is to show you that the theories overlap more than you think. Goal two is to expand your understanding of Keefe's psychology and the plausibility of his actions. Goal three, to show you why Lex intercepting checks is less probable. And goal four, to give you greater insight into Wallace, Bruce, and Lex. Those are the big ticket aims. Let's start with our two theories, which we'll call Lex Intercept for Lex intercepting the checks, and Keefe Refuse, for Keefe refusing to cash the checks. For most of this episode, we'll be discussing the rationale behind Keefe Refuse, not simply because it's the position we're advocating for, but because all of its plausibility, psychology, narrative, and logic is subsumed by Lex Intercept. That is, everything in the theory is also accepted by Lex Intercept. A mistake that many have made is assuming that because Keefe doesn't make sense, Lex suddenly does. That because they don't understand or can't imagine Keefe's motives, blaming Lex for it resolves the illogical actions. Not realizing that they still must arrive at plausible motivations for Keefe, even inside Lex Intercept. The very premise of Lex Intercept is built on Lex prudently planning to use Keefe as a plausible patsy all along, somebody who would believably commit this crime and take the blame. Or another way to say it is that Lex was always planning to play the role of prosecutor, planting evidence to present his theory of the crime, Keefe's means, motives, and opportunity persuasively. Lex is trying to convince you of exactly the same thing that I will be trying to explain to you under Keefe Refuse Theory. That not only did Keefe have the obvious means and opportunity to refuse the checks, but a plausible psychological motive to do so as well. Anytime somebody who believes in Lex Intercept says, Keefe wouldn't do that, that doesn't make sense, they're poking holes in their own theory because that's saying that Lex planned to present an implausible scenario. 
one that Keith wouldn't do, that doesn't make sense, and one which the people in Lex's world would reject. And thus, he's a poorly planned patsy, completely contrary to the entire point of the theory, to show that Lex is a mastermind. It's also an errant estimation of probability. If we were to draw out our sets of possibility as a Venn diagram, one set is all possible actions Keith may take, one set is all actions the public believes have a plausible motive for the actor to do, and the final set are actions that are in Lex's interests, which he could and would plan to do. Under Keefe Refuse Theory, we only have to find the intersection between Keefe's possible actions and what you might find plausible. And one of my goals in this episode is to increase that intersection and understanding. However, under Lex Intercept, all three sets must intersect and is therefore necessarily, mathematically, and logically a smaller subset of possibilities than Keefe Refuse. So forgetting the math terms for a bit, in English, while Keefe Refuse Theory only has to make sense to Keefe, to work, Lex Intercept has to make sense to the public. In other words, what they think would make sense to Keefe, and it has to make sense to Lex to work. And anytime you add more conditions to a general one, that makes it less probable, less likely. That said, our occasional inclination to assume otherwise is a cognitive bias known as the conjunction fallacy. How many seven-letter words can you think of that have N as the second-to-last letter? A little tricky, isn't it? But how many seven-letter words can you think of that have ing as the last three letters? You probably have a few more words coming to mind now, and if you don't give it much more thought, you might even think there are more words that end in ing than blank and blank. But here's the thing, that's not true at all. There are actually fewer words that end in ing. A lot fewer. Because ing words also have n as the second to last letter, but not the other way around. So you have words like falling, resting, and playing in both categories, but words like present, command, and examine are just in one. What just happened was a conjunction fallacy, when someone falsely assumes a combination of events is more likely than just one of the events. In this case, one might assume the combination of an I here, an N here, and a G here is somehow more common than just an N here. And this doesn't just apply to abstract letter games. In one study, when given information about a fictitious patient and a list of possible symptoms to match, doctors generally thought a combination of conditions was more likely than just one of the two by itself. This, of course, would be a false assessment. Looking at this Venn diagram, it's clear that the combination of symptoms is just a smaller subset of one of the conditions by itself. As a general rule in statistics, the probability of a conjunction of events is always less than the probability of just one of the events. For instance, flipping heads twice in a row is less likely than flipping heads just once. If it's that obvious, why are we prone to making errors like misjudging letters or, more importantly, misdiagnosing patients? The most compelling answer lies in our use of heuristics, small mental shortcuts we take to simplify our decision making. The availability heuristic, for example, involves judging something's frequency based on how quickly it comes to mind, or how available it is in your memory. It's why you can so quickly judge the popularity of a song based on how frequently you hear it on the radio. But it can also lead to misjudgments, like when we become hesitant of flights after seeing a plane crash gain coverage on the news, without knowing what actual plane crash statistics indicate. And in the case of the letter game from earlier, it's why we overestimate the frequency of the ing words we're familiar with from our grammar lessons about verbs. On the other hand, the representativeness heuristic involves judging probabilities based on how closely an instance matches our preconceptions of what we're judging. We identify characteristics that readily represent categories set in our head. A person smiling matches our preconception of someone friendly more than a person scowling. 
Snap judgments like these may help us avoid someone who wants to pick a fight, but this heuristic may also lead us astray. In the case of the diagnosis from earlier, the description may fit a doctor's understanding of dyspnea and hemiparesis, but probabilities don't add up in that way. Either one of the symptoms is more likely than the patient having both. So why does all of this matter? The conjunction fallacy occurs in all sorts of situations, not only in medicine, but in sports, gambling, and law. Pretty much any time judgments must be made about how likely or how frequent things are, there exists the risk of falling prey to the conjunction fallacy. While the heuristics that lead us there do help out in certain circumstances, sometimes logic is more appropriate than instinct. Drawing this distinction is what's most crucial. So as you can tell from that clip, we crave more detail, more information. But in truth, more detail and more information make the scenario less likely. All right, I'll put a link in the show notes for more information on the conjunction fallacy. Part of the reason that we're vulnerable to this fallacy is because we like to complete the story and create a picture in our mind. And the more details we get, the easier it is to paint a picture and fill in the details. And the tangibility of that ends up outweighing the mathematical truth that fewer limitations make an outcome more probable. So we're going to paint a picture in the alternative to help you overcome that cognitive bias. But before we get to that, let's see the picture that Lex Intercept paints and why it's initially and superficially satisfying. Basically, it gives us an impetus for everything. It's a silo that we can put all our facts into and a cause that we can blame. Lex intercepts Keith's checks and that triggers Keith's downfall. Without money, his family leaves and he lives in a sad space. Keith becomes frustrated and radical and that's why he vandalizes the statue and that's why he made for a great patsy. It also explains why the notes to Bruce are so pointed and why Lex seems to take credit for them. It ticks a lot of boxes, which is why it's so easy to instinctively adopt at a superficial level. I fully expect and accept that this is probably going to be the majority interpretation of the film for most. And that's honestly okay. This show is not for them. It's for us, those who chew their food. Because when you sit down and think about Lex Intercept Theory, for every element it answers, many, many more questions spring up in its place. Forget motive for a moment, and let's just assume that Lex is absolutely committed to this course of action. What are the logistics of Lex Intercept? What has to happen for this to come off without a hitch? Lex needs to be able to intercept the checks, obviously, and that one we can easily concede, right? Lex is powerful, he has minions, he conducts plenty of illegal activity. So what's one more on the pile, right? Next, Lex needs to keep Keefe from knowing Lex is intercepting the checks, right? Because if Keefe knows Lex is to blame, that kind of undermines the whole thing. So Lex either has to keep Keefe from ever knowing that the fund existed, or he has to cut Keefe off, but keep Keefe quiet. And this is a problem because Lex needs total Truman Show level of control over Keefe's life to do this. There are a million circumstantial, intentional, or unpredictable ways Keefe could find out he was supposed to be getting checks in the first place. Keefe is obsessed with the accident and with news coverage of Superman. He has a wife and kid who would want that money too. Lex would have to keep Keefe and his family from ever being notified about the victim's fund, from reading about it or learning about it from anyone. How ignorant can Lex render Wally? Can he keep Wally and his wife from going on the internet? 
internet, from going to support groups, from running into other victims at the grocery store. It's probably not possible to keep Keefe in the dark about the fund. Not in a way that you could plan on, or not in a way that you could commit to two years in advance. Well, what about cutting Keefe off? Sure, Keefe knows that the fund exists, but Lex somehow stops Keefe from getting the checks. Well, now Lex has to keep Keefe quiet. Because what if Keefe goes to contact the fund, or to accounting, or to the authorities, or to the press to ask for his entitlement? There'll be an investigation, and Keefe will get his money, and Lex's entire intention is undone. It's clear, in fact, in the film, that Lex can't micromanage Wally. Lex can't stop him from blurting out, I work for Bruce Wayne, on live national television. So Lex can't stop him from screaming, where are my victim funds checks, and undoing his entire plan. If Wallace had yelled that out, that would have resulted in an investigation as to whether he had received his checks, and that would have been the end of Lex's two-year patsy plan. So obviously Lex did not make that plan. More evidence that Lex can't micromanage Wally? Lex can't stop him from buying fresh groceries before a bombing masked as a suicide. So to me, it looks like Lex Intercept is already dead in the water. But for the sake of argument, let's say that Lex can completely control Keefe, completely cut him off from ever knowing anything is amiss, and to make him completely unable to ask for help. Something that's contradicted by his very vocal and extreme public statue stunt. But again, for the sake of argument, for Lex Intercept to work, it would have to have a predictable effect. One that you could expect or plan for. How can Lex ensure all the circumstances play out exactly the way he needs them to. Stopping Wally from getting money that he doesn't know he's supposed to get is an extremely vague and hands-off impact, and it's insane to expect it to have such a specific response or outcome. Even if Lex knows that Keefe will break down, how does he know that breaking down a man in such an unguided, unspecific way will benefit him? It's not a given that Wallace's wife would walk out. It's not a given that Keefe wouldn't fight for custody of his daughter and that that response responsibility would keep him hanging on for her sake. How does he know that Keefe doesn't resort to drugs or alcohol or hurts himself in a way that makes him useless? How does he know that Keefe doesn't steal money and get caught such that he's useless to Lex? Or on the flip side, how does he know that Keefe doesn't just make a friend or find faith or forgiveness so that he's useless to Lex? Lex can't predict Keefe's course of action or fate just because he intercepted some checks. Lex doesn't have a crystal ball. He can't predict whether the victim's fund might do an audit or accounting or uncover an oversight of uncashed checks. He can't predict if the fund or other victims or Bruce himself might suddenly feel moved to send somebody to meet Keefe. Bruce was there the day that Keefe was rescued. Sometimes people that you meet cross your mind and you want to meet them or do something for them. How could Lex's plan account for that two years in advance? He can't. It's absolute nonsense and bunk to believe that Lex could predict the outcome of all these events solely, only, by intercepting checks. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense. So if the logistics are a mess, let's move on to motivations. Let's move on to what Lex would want to do to achieve his plan. Note the contradictory motivations if Lex is behind rejecting the checks monthly with a message. Basically, that's something that calls attention to itself. Something that Lex doesn't want if he wants to keep Keefe ending up as his patsy. But he also wants the checks to show a pattern to establish Keefe as a proper suspect. No one can predict that far or that reliably that simply denying Keefe checks would make him the perfect scapegoat two years later. And what's the motivation? It isn't to provoke 
Batman to fight Superman because Batman is already intending to do it before he becomes aware of Keefe's checks. Batman is already after the kryptonite, already planning to take Superman on without Wally, a showdown that's already on track. You Let Your Family Die only expedited the confrontation in accord with Lex's tightening time frame, something started by Senator Finch rejecting his import license, an indication that the tide and tone was turning against him, shortening the window to the ship, limiting when he could still kill a stained Superman, something he couldn't and wouldn't have known or planned for two years prior, when the checks started going out uncashed. Just hypothetically, what if Senator Finch not only granted Lex import license, but backed him wholeheartedly with everything the Senate committee could offer? In terms of motivation, two years prior, why would Lex be planning to bomb a committee that wasn't his enemy yet, hadn't disagreed with him yet, and indeed likely didn't even exist yet? If I'm getting excited, it's because this is so illogical, so unreasonable, and yet what so many people believe. To make this work, we need to create incredibly acrobatic apologetics to explain the way the checks were returned and how and when. To apologize for and interpret Greg's statements, the physical evidence, and the timing in new ways, all to make this one interpretation of Lex's ambiguous line work. And I'm not saying that the explanations and apologetics can't be done, but we're introducing an awful lot of complexity in order to reconcile an interpretation rather than a fact. Conversely, under Keefe Refuse Theory, we can just take Greg at his word. We can take the scenes at face value, and we can take Lex's lines literally without any added contradiction. At no point does Lex say, I intercepted the checks and I wrote the notes. No, all he says is little red notes. So isn't it far, far easier to just reinterpret our understanding of him saying that than to start training our monkey to clap coconuts astride a silent zebra? There are so many problems with Lex Intercept, I can barely contain all the objections to it. It just doesn't make any sense. So, what's the interpretation that does make sense? It's the one that the film actually presents, even if it's the one that makes us uncomfortable. And that discomfort comes in part from showing us how flawed and fragile and fallen we can be. It's the twist in the pit of Bruce's stomach when he reads that last note and believes that this was inside of Wally. We want Wally to be a wonderful guy and with his family, if not for Lex Luthor, to say that the devil made him do it. However, this universe has always confronted the audience with the uncomfortable and the fallibility of man. While we don't want to imagine Wally's fall without Lex behind it, is it actually unimaginable or inconceivable? Could Keefe do all that he did up until he met Lex without Lex? Of course he could. Think about it. Take yourself back to the first time you watched it before we learned that Keefe was a pawn. What was the narrative? What was presented in the film? Before Lois uncovers the truth or Lex claims responsibility, the narrative is that Wallace was just that disturbed, that angry, and that desperate, willing to throw away his own life to hurt Superman. In other words, what Keefe has already shown us is exactly what Bruce believed reading that red note. Lex would have no way of knowing that Keefe was ready, willing, and able to throw away his freedom, his family, his future, and to do up to 40 years prison time for a crime committed in broad daylight. As presented in the film, that was all Keefe. The film presents everything up to Keefe's arrest as his own initiative. 
And under Keefe refuse theory, that includes returning the checks and maybe the red notes. It is the broadcast of Keefe's arrest that brings Keefe to Lex's attention and into Lex's plans. Lex is responsible for the last red note, the bombing and framing Keefe, but not for refusing the checks. Under this theory, no prognostication or crystal ball is necessary over a two-year period. Lex only needs to get Keefe from being bailed, to the bombing, a much shorter period with much clearer objectives. However, you can already hear the objections, right? If Lex wasn't intercepting the checks, why did Keefe's family walk out on him? Why would Keefe return checks if it leaves him without money? Why would Keefe write those notes? How could those notes be so accurate, insightful, and prescient? Why wouldn't anyone react to Keefe's notes? Why did Keefe say, I work for Bruce Wayne? How did Lex know about the notes? And if Lex didn't cause Batman's anger, how'd he know Batman was angry? How do we make sense of Lex's lines then? Well, never fear, we have answers for all of it. And in the process, you'll gain greater insight into Keefe, Bruce, Lex, and some ideas in the film. So let's take on that first question. I'll read the question, give a short answer, and then go into more detail. So question, if Lex wasn't intercepting checks, why did Keefe's family walk out on him? Answer, Keefe was too bitter, angry, and obsessed with Superman to move on. So as the art book says, the incident left him a broken man with little to live for except one thing. Not his wife and family, not income or recovery. When we see Keefe months after the BZE, he's consumed by his hatred of Superman. And unfortunately, he doesn't have the ability to channel it into an alter ego like Bruce can. He didn't need to throw anything at the cop. He didn't need to resist arrest. He didn't have to swear at Lex. He didn't have to be vulgar and go into urination with Senator Finch. And he couldn't help but bark his last words at the reporter. The way he places his family on the memorial wall seems almost a way of saying he's given up on them. He would rather risk 40 years to make this statement than try to get them back. If Keefe was a man dedicated to his family above all else, even his wife walking out wouldn't strip him of his parental rights to see his daughter. He could have still fought for her if he wanted to. But we never see Keefe put as much effort into reclaiming his family as he does bringing down Superman. He never uses the cameras or the press to call out to them. Or it's possible that all of this is the product of abandonment rather than the cause. Which just proves the point. The intercepted checks are unnecessary to explain the loss of Keefe's family. When Keefe accuses his wife of walking out on him, it's sandwiched between two lines about his physical manhood. Not income or poverty or employment. At least in Keefe's mind, the loss of his legs cost him his family, not the loss of disability income. And maybe that's all it took. Keefe didn't have to be destitute or angry to drive away his family. It doesn't have to be his fault. Maybe his amputation alone was too much for his wife to take personally. If we accept Keefe's statement at face value, what is in the movie, what he actually says, that disloyalty could be what caused his descent into anger and not intercepted checks. For that matter, it doesn't have to be anyone's fault. The point is, while being denied your disability payment could act as a blanket reason for all these issues and ills, it also isn't hard at all to imagine entirely independent reasons that arise on their own simply from the trauma of this tragedy. The fact that Keefe is angry, the fact that his family left him, these are not dispositive proof that the checks were intercepted. We don't need an added reason. The film and Keefe give us one, that he's been made half a man and his wife walked. Nonetheless, we can ask our next question. If the checks were indeed mailed and not intercepted and received, why then weren't they cashed? 
why would Keefe return checks if that would only hurt him? Question, why would Keefe return checks if it leaves him without money? Answer, Keefe cares about the message more than money and is willing to act against his own self-interest. Before we unpack that, let's take a moment to look at who Keefe is. He's a blue-collar security guard in the financial district. His job is to stand guard and provide a sense of security, but it also isn't exactly a high-risk job, and he's surrounded by people with money. It's not like he's following an ambitious career path with a lot of growth potential, or one filled with honor or self-sacrifice. It isn't about prestige or riches. This is just a job, and presumably he's okay with that. Money isn't his highest priority, even if it's important. We've already seen that Keefe will do things that he knows will hurt him for the sake of his message. We've already seen that he's willing to risk 40 years in prison just so he can spray paint false god on Superman. If it's about money or income or self-interest, isn't returning a few checks far less costly than the one thing we've unambiguously see him do on his own accord? You're going to miss out on a lot of income if you're a convicted felon and sentenced to 40 years prison time. So arguing that Keefe couldn't or wouldn't return a check because of the harm that it would do to himself or the benefit that it would deny him is something that we've already seen is untrue. His method of declaring false god was especially self-destructive. He made no effort to try to get away with it, attempting to do it at night or out of sight or without law enforcement immediately present, all of which was further aggravated by resisting arrest. His message was somewhat coded and cryptic, and his statements yelled to the police inexplicable and unclear. It's not like false god clearly unpacks into Superman brought us war or I work for Bruce Wayne, conveys something to rally behind. Even his biggest and boldest action isn't entirely prudent, isn't entirely clear. So why then would that be the expectation with respect to the checks? Perhaps because with the statute, there's at least a motive, a message to rationalize the self-harm. What was Keefe's message with returning the checks or the red notes? Question, why would Keefe write those notes? Why would Keefe use checks to send the message? Answer, Keefe thinks Bruce speaks only in money and is angry Bruce isn't anti-Superman. Keefe's final words are also his clearest. I've come here to tell them to wake up. This is flesh and blood. You know, he, he has delivered a war here. And, and this, this is what war looks like. I have nothing. There are plenty of people, sir, who would say he's their hero. Yeah, he is not a hero. He wants people to wake up from their apathy and adoration of Superman, to blame Superman for all the collateral and the cost, and conclude that Superman is not a hero. That's Keefe's manifesto. But how does he express that with the Superman statue? He summed it all up in red spray paint, saying, false god. In a certain sense, Keefe is an abstract artist who doesn't just clearly declare or express his points. The statue takes some interpretation to get Keefe's last words at Capitol Hill. So is it really all that surprising that some interpretation might be needed to get from his return checks to his intentions. They're clearly not clear, which is why one can easily be forgiven for accepting Lex intercepted them all, because it just seems easier to write it all off as lunacy and rely on Lex. But remember, if what Lex does makes it implausible, unrealistic, and nonsensical for Keefe to do, then that's a bad Patsy plan, because it makes the story your Patsy tells unlikely, unbelievable, and illogical. So whether you believe Keefe did it or Lex posing as Keefe did it, you still need the bedrock of Keefe doing it 
making sense. As another quick side argument against Lex intercept theory, consider the consistency between the modus operandi between the checks and the statue. Big, bold, all capital in red, short, punchy, cryptic accusations sprawled across something not meant for the message. If Lex was the genesis of that style of protest published on the checks unknown and unseen to Keefe, unable in any way to influence Keefe, how impossibly convenient for him that Keefe should follow in his footsteps and again use all the same conventions in his own protest on the Superman statue. The red capital letters, the short symbolic accusation, etc. Good thing for Lex that Keefe didn't protest in a myriad of other alternatives like getting upset at a victim support meeting or ranting on the internet or social media, sending a detailed manifesto to a newspaper, protesting with signs and a bullhorn in the street, or even using a different color or more direct message like kill him. Even more important is that in all the ways that Keefe could protest, he never simply says, I want my victim fund checks, something which would trigger an investigation and subsequent relief if actually heard by anyone in the know. And lucky for Lex, Keefe didn't do or say anything that might contradict Lex's unseen checks, like a public statement on the record supporting Bruce or begging for money. Instead, he stays completely silent on the topic until he explodes in expression at Heroes Park. The commonalities in style between both protests are easily answered if Keefe did them both. No further explanation is needed. It's his style, his way, so naturally the output would be similar when one follows the other. But with Lex Intercept, you have to do all sorts of crazy gymnastics to account for this uncanny coincidence. Either Lex has a crystal ball and mind probes where he can predict right down to the paint color what kind of protest Keefe might do in the future, or otherwise he's post-dated the evidence and found a way to retroactively plant it backwards in time. I'm being a little sarcastic, of course, but the point is we're getting further and further away from what the story directly tells us and what's more plausible and not taking the film at face value. But I'm getting off track. Let's get back to why Keefe is angry at Bruce and why he uses checks. Keefe says what he wants in his interview. He wants the people in power, like the government, like Bruce, to see Superman as an enemy, to wake up and get angry. But what did Bruce do? Bruce betrayed Keefe. Bruce is the boss. As he goes, so others will follow. Bruce was victimized by Superman, like Keefe. But as far as Keefe can tell, Bruce isn't angry, he isn't awake, his eyes are closed, he's blind to the cost in flesh and blood and not just dollars and cents. Bruce is just burying the victims by buying them off, then rebuilding and moving on as if nothing happened. There's no anti-alien initiative against Superman coming from the boss, just money. This idea is consistent with the use of checks, mentioning blindness, mentioning ghosts, and Keefe screaming, I work for Bruce Wayne during the arrest. As a quick thematic aside, Keefe as the ghost in a revenge play makes more sense and works better if he's actually the scribe of the checks, rather than if it's Lex posing as Keefe. But that's neither here nor there with respect to the internal logical consistency of the story. If Keefe protests in an abstract way as an abstract artist, let's look at interpreting Keefe's use of checks. With the Superman protest, Keefe went right to vandalizing a point of honor and pride and identity. It's a statue in Superman's honor in the middle of Heroes Park. Humanity's acknowledgement of their regard for Superman. With the checks, consider how everyone refers to Bruce Wayne. Billionaire Bruce Wayne has more hits than the next five adjectives tied to his name combined, be it CEO, philanthropist, playboy, etc. 
Prior to the BZE, Keefe's job was protecting Bruce Wayne's money, guarding Wayne Financial. And on the day of the BZE, when everyone sensible was running away from the city, the boss ran towards his money. Think about it. Put yourself in Keefe's shoes. Why is the clipping of Bruce Wayne pulling Keefe from the rubble on Keefe's wall of shame, along with Superman's many heroic exploits? Because they're the same. Hailed as heroes, but as Keefe claims, He's not a hero. Incidentally, you could also argue that's why Keefe's wife is on that wall as well. Not just sentiment, but because she too betrayed him by walking out on him, abandoning him. After the BZE, Keefe had his own drama, but he was patient with Bruce. It's been 24 months since the BZE, and assuming that Bruce started the Victims Fund shortly after, the stacks of checks should have been about two dozen deep. Instead, we clearly see six, dated from December 2013 to May 2014. So somewhere between eight to ten total. So that tells me Keefe could have been cashing those initial checks. And that makes sense. He still has a family to support. He knows Bruce is still rebuilding just like he was rehabilitating. Further, rejecting the first few checks would have set off a red flag with the brand new program. Especially when something is just starting out. Those running the fund would want to see that everything was running smoothly and orderly. But at some point, Keefe would have lost his patience. He'd expect something from Bruce denouncing Superman, condemning the collapse, going on the attack, and leading others to open their eyes and stand against Superman. But Bruce does nothing. Bruce just keeps sending checks. And not only that, there's no support, no services, no counseling, no community. Just another check. And Keefe thinks that Bruce is blind. And he's actually right. Bruce is blind. The dramatic irony of this, of course, is that Bruce's grudge is just as great as Keefe's, only he intends to kill Superman directly rather than through others. If Bruce could have shared that intent with Keefe, just imagine how that would have calmed him. However, Bruce's rage as Batman not only renders him especially cruel and callous to criminals, but insensitive to those he ought to be helping. When Wallace laments his woes on camera, Bruce's response isn't, why hasn't his support group helped him? Why hasn't his counselor or therapist reported in. That's because Bruce never thought of those kinds of solutions to help his company family. He doesn't think about emotional problems emotionally. Instead, he immediately wonders why Wallace hasn't been compensated. As if somebody with money couldn't have these issues. And as if the money Bruce sent should have made Wallace whole. His first diagnosis was also his only response. Greg why hasn't he been getting our checks? Again, in other words, if Keefe had been getting our checks, he wouldn't have these issues. And it's interesting to see a lot of the audience go along with Bruce's reasoning, being blind and missing the point just like Bruce does. That surely no one could be as angry as Keefe if only somebody had cut him a check. And because of that, so many leap to the erroneous conclusion that Keefe's behavior is because of Lex intercept theory. Isn't it? entirely plausible to have all the money in the world and be just as angry and as bitter as Keefe. If you're not with me, pause and think about it. Isn't it entirely possible to have all the money in the world and be just as angry and as bitter as Keefe, right? Doesn't Lex demonstrably prove that possibility? Doesn't Bruce? Do you see now? Do you get it? Having money doesn't stop you from being angry. And yet Bruce thought that was the solution. And yet that only made Keefe more 
angry. When Keefe says, I have nothing, why would Bruce immediately take that as meaning Keefe's bank account? And bottom line, isn't a man who lost his family and limbs and livelihood entitled to say something like that, even if he has money? When Wallace Keefe lost his legs, his manhood, his family, his identity, his ability to stand, all Bruce did in response was cut a check. To somebody as twisted up in anger as Keefe, what kind of message does that send? As long as you have money, you're okay? Not grief counselors, not a new job, not prosthetics, not support, not even revenge. Just money. Something Keefe never cared about, given his unambitious day job. Bruce is blind. Now, I know this seems like a lot to lay on Bruce, but let's look at a real-life, real-world example of reparation. The following clips are about Daryl Cannon, an innocent man tortured into giving a false confession. Daryl went to trial in 1984. He tried to get his confession suppressed, but he couldn't. He was found guilty of murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison, based on a confession that the police had tortured out of him. Here's what emerged. For 20 years, a group of Chicago police officers known as the Midnight Crew banged on doors and took men from their homes or snatched them from the street and threw them in cars and tortured them. And the city knew about this for years. But over time, the tide of stories made it impossible to ignore. Some of the men won new trials and were released. And Chicago was left with this huge question. How do you make something like this right? They'd served their full sentences and so much time had passed that the statute of limitations had run out. They couldn't sue the city. They'd need another option. They settled on 5.5 million, split evenly among 57 torture victims. Each man got $100,000, including Daryl Cannon, who was tortured with the cattle prod. 20 years in prison, all he lost, and the city gave him $100,000. When I met him, he had about nine grand left. Daryl is old friends with one of the other torture victims, Ronald Kitchen. That's the guy who sued the city and won $6 million. And I asked Daryl and Ronald if they'd be willing to talk to each other about the money. They agreed, so we set up a phone call. You went through kind of the same experience, but Ronald sued the city and got more than $6 million, and Daryl got 100000 Does it ever get weird for you? People think that you get $6.7 million. They feel that the city done paid for it, but like I always say, it's not about the money. No matter, cause it's, it's not about how much money you get, because the things that was taken away from you, you can't buy it with money. Daryl, you don't feel jealous. That no. Ronald got six point seven million. No, look, Father, I have told him they should have gotten more than six million, and I meant just that. The money didn't make or break me in no shape, form, or fashion, and it is not something that I dwell on and wish that it was more. I talked to a handful of men who got the reparations money. Most said they spent it on mundane things and necessities, like furniture, mortgage payments. When I asked if it was enough, they all said basically the same thing. Your question is crazy. Of course it's not enough. Nothing could ever be enough. Asking about numbers is missing the point. The guys are going to get a couple of other things. Free community college for them and their kids and their grandkids. Job training. Psychological counseling. But there is one other thing that Daryl would like. And that has to do with the men who tortured him. You know, my lawyers don't like for me to say what I'm getting ready to say, but I still say it anyway. And that is, I cannot stand the air that they breathe. I hate them just that much. And if he got a chance to be in the same room with them. I would love to to use a cattle prowl on any one of them. You wouldn't. Yes, I would. 
You know, I know it's wrong would to you? say yes, 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 because I would want them to experience what I felt. And I would shock them until one or two things happened. They had a heart attack or the batteries died. I ain't lying. I ain't lying. If it took all day, I'd shh. None of this is simple. None of this is fixed. So everyone said no amount of money could ever be enough. But there was one thing that all of these guys agreed on, everyone I spoke to. As part of this reparations package, every 8th and 10th grader in the city of Chicago is going to learn about this torture. It's going to be part of the school curriculum. Every one of the guys said, this is what's important to me, that they're going to tell our story. Wow. You heard it yourself. Money was not the point. No amount of money could return what they lost. You heard how Daryl is still angry, still willing to go on record saying something against his own self-interest, something his lawyers told him not to say, something that would cost him even more if he ever went through with it, something that would turn him from an innocent man into a guilty one. And yet, you also heard how reparations went beyond money, into an apology, education, counseling, and more importantly, The message, more than anything else, across the board, they all wanted their story to be told. That's Wallace Keefe. The film captures the desperation to be heard in Keefe's demonstration and dialogue. His protest is well beyond the scope of a snarky tweet or even legal peaceful protest. When he's arrested, it's obscured by the news report, but you can just make out a line that he says that's in the art book. Quote, I'm a person. Unquote. This is what war looks like. This is flesh and blood. Keefe wants to be seen and heard. So we have a basis for anger, a justification for calling Bruce blind, and for somebody rejecting checks because he thinks he's speaking Bruce's language. Keefe wants to be heard. He wants a reaction. He wants someone to do something because of the checks. He thinks he can trigger Bruce's conscience or create a confrontation. He thinks Bruce should be a bigger anti-Superman advocate. He thinks he was betrayed by Bruce, simply cutting checks and moving on. So he escalates his statement at the statue. Remember, whether you believe that Keefe did himself, or you want Lex to be the one doing it on Keefe's behalf, there has to be a believable rationale for Keefe doing this. This is the narrative under both Keefe refuse and Lex intercept theory. However, as we raised before, while Keefe wants attention, Lex doesn't want attention on Keefe until the appointed time. He doesn't want Keefe to be heard, cured, and relieved. He wants Keefe to continue to boil away and for there to be no remedy in sight. So intentionally returning the checks as part of a plan to taking years makes absolutely no sense. To support this theory, you have to, again, play gymnastics with the returns and the time to make it all work. Now, going back to Keefe as the actual one returning the checks, why wouldn't anyone do anything? Well, it's not illegal to decline money, and the messages are largely nonsensical. And maybe someone was simply insensitive because that was the attitude from the top down. We help these people with money. That's all we help these people with. If they don't want the money, they don't want the help we provide. Ultimately, we don't know. Greg says as much. And note, reasonably, there wouldn't be anybody to complain, even if there was somebody to follow up or investigate. Keefe is the victim of his own protest. So he's not about to go anywhere or do anything about not getting his checks because he knows their disposition. He's the one sending them back. And even if the victim's fund contacts him or asks him if he's sure or if he needs anything else, Keefe himself will confirm their concerns. He'll tell them where they can shove their money and that he needs a meeting with Mr. Wayne and they 
will politely hang up on their end and ignore the issue for another month. Contrast this against Lex being the one to return the checks. Again, it's not illegal to decline money, but it is illegal to intercept it from an expectant party. Here, Keefe wouldn't know why he isn't getting the checks. He wouldn't know why other victims were getting benefits when he wasn't. He would have cause to be angry and to complain, and he would ask for his checks. He would go to the authorities. He would investigate because he isn't the cause of his own misery. Similarly, Keefe couldn't or wouldn't confirm any of the issues if the victim's fund ever reached out to him. If they asked, are you really sure you want to return this? Or this message is disturbing. Is there some way we can help? Keefe would not have any clue what they were talking about. An investigation would ensue and the entire plot would be undone. Lex as the mastermind makes no sense. We desperately want to attribute it to Lex because we want to believe that Lex engineers everything from the start, but that isn't really the case. Instead, he's very comfortable with adapting the efforts of others to his own needs. There seems to be this misconception that Lex needs to be the ultimate mastermind behind everything from its inception, that he is the entire genesis of his schemes from nothingness from scratch. But nothing could be further from the truth. Lex repeatedly piggybacks on the efforts of others to enact his ends. For example, Lex didn't create or name the company. His dad did, and then he took over. Lex didn't start or create Batman's brandings. No, but he took over what Batman started for his own ends. Lex didn't start or create the tension or hypocrisy between the United States and Nairobi. No, but he took over that situation to create the African incident. Lex didn't create the Genesis Chamber or Zod's body. No, but he took them over to create Doomsday. Lex didn't start or create the Senate Committee on Superman. No, but he took over their agenda to play out his puppet theater. Lex didn't start or create Keith's vandalism. No, but he took over Keith's case and weaponized it. Time and time again, Lex doesn't manufacture the circumstances from the start, but instead recognizes the situation as it is, and master manipulator that he is, turns it to his advantage. Lex doesn't have this single monolithic plan immutable from beginning to end. He has plans within plans, fallbacks, contingencies, and responds and reacts to what he sees. We see Lex respond to having his import license blocked. It's not like he had a jar of piss waiting before Senator Finch said the line. We see Lex responding to learning the secrets of the ship. It's not like he could have planned or anticipated Doomsday when he didn't even know that Doomsday was possible. We see Lex respond to Lois learning about the light metals, and we see Lex respond to Batman by forcing Superman to fight. At every turn, Lex is able to analyze events and capitalize upon it. Why do we insist that Lex had to engineer the fall of Wallace Keefe rather than taking advantage of what was already there? So how did it happen? Let's get back to our narrative of Wallace Keefe. In the Lex Intercept model, Keefe is completely silent for months on end. That this vociferous, angry man doesn't do or say anything until his arrest? In Keefe Refuse theory, though, he was protesting the entire time, trying to appeal to somebody who could make a difference. Every month, he submitted his objection and waited for action. His frustration grows, but he isn't spending two years uncharacteristically silent. And at the end of his patience, after seeing the African incident, Keefe vandalizes the Superman statue with a mission in mind. Keefe has a call to arms in mind, not a simple straightforward declaration like kill him, die, or you suck. Remember why he was sending the checks back, why he felt disenfranchised, and his feelings of betrayal. He believes that his fellow victim, Bruce Wayne, should be the boss, leading an anti-Superman charge. So what does he shout while being arrested with the cameras on him? I work for Bruce Wayne. It's an appeal to authority. 
if Bruce Wayne would have me do this, you should feel this way too. It's an attempt to rope Bruce Wayne into acknowledging it. And it's a warped expectation, but it's consistent with the magical thinking of addressing the checks to Bruce. He says some other things that I can't quite make out. My best guess is he says there's no heroes here and something like put me down. And of course, there's the I'm a person as we saw in the art book. And I'm always open to new evidence. So let me know if you can prove what he's saying. Otherwise, we're going to go with what the film clearly intended for us to hear. There are some other interpretations, and let's just quickly go through them. I work for Bruce Wayne. Bruce, please use your power to get me out of this. Or, I work for Bruce Wayne. Bruce, why aren't I getting my checks? Well, neither of these make sense in terms of timing, right? If you think Bruce Wayne is going to help you, why would you wait until now to ask for help? Surely, you could have asked for help protesting Superman sooner instead of waiting for an arrest to ask for legal aid. Unless, as in Keefe Refuse Theory, you've already been asking Bruce to step in all along, and this was just a final escalation. In other words, like I said, Keefe isn't expecting Bruce to step in. He's expecting others to take it as if. If Bruce endorses this. By the same token, if you thought you were owed checks, why would you wait 20 months to ask for them in this way? Hint, you wouldn't, right? <laughs> and additionally, if this was Lex's master plan, how could he have stopped Wally from screaming, where are my victim fund checks, right? At this moment or much earlier. Remember, in the Lex Intercept model, all of this, everything is driven by intercepted checks. They're the reason and motivation and engine of all of Wally's woes. They ought to be the foremost thing in his mind and one of the first things he asks for. But he doesn't. And why would he if he was the one returning the checks and knew that there were no checks to be had? If this is all a part of Lex's plan, how does he know that Keefe will commit such a thematically perfect protest for his arc as a patsy? Although angry, the protest is almost perfect propaganda, just abstract enough to be widely adopted. A middle finger or obscenity wouldn't have sold any agenda. Keefe would have lost legitimacy if he had hurt or killed anyone, if he had used violence to speak out. Again, there's absolutely no way Lex could have planned any of this. I am absolutely beating a dead horse. Let's move on. So here's where the reports of Keefe's arrest bring him to Lex's attention and when Lex actually enters Keefe's story. Now is when Lex starts his research and starts to understand his pawn and come up with a scheme and how to use him. It wouldn't be that hard. We've already seen that Keefe's injury is a part of public record. And we've seen that Lex can learn where Keefe lives and break in, both in their first encounter and after the bombing to plant evidence of bomb making. We've also seen that Keefe is a meticulous record keeper, at least in one respect, obsessively compiling the Superman stories that paper his walls. It's not a stretch to imagine that Keefe has other records that relate to other things, like perhaps a stack of uncashed checks held in resentment or a copy of checks returned with a message. The point is, by the time Lex anonymously bails Keefe out, Lex already has the chair, the pitch, the plan, and knows it's going to work on him. That's because he's done his homework, and it's much more plausible to understand Keefe's immediate, consistent motives after months of frustration and public protest than it is to minority report and predict Keefe's moves, motives, and dissent during an 18-month downward spiral. 
Three quick notes about the bailout. It was obviously anonymized. Lex was already planning to do what he planned to do, so it wouldn't do to be linked to Keith's release as a matter of public record. Moreover, we can assume that Lex's bailout was anonymized because Keith didn't get an answer he could connect to the stranger in his apartment. When he asked who paid, if the answer was Lex Luthor, then Keith might be inclined to say, you must be Lex, the first time they meet. The second note ties back to the motive for screaming, I work for Bruce Wayne. Remember, in our theory, it's an attempt to rope Bruce into his mission. So you might imagine a glimmer of hope when Keefe asks, who paid? Did it work? Was it Bruce? A last note about the line who paid, it's obviously a sad line because the subtext there is that there is no one in Keefe's life he expects to pay his bail. Anyone named at that point would be a surprise to him. He has no one, he has nothing. From Lex's perspective, you can see why the statute stunt makes Keefe a perfect patsy. Like we said before, Keefe didn't do anything to distract from his message like using violence or obscenity. Keefe also showed conviction and enough self-destructive tendency that people could plausibly buy him as a bomber. That's something that Lex could observe and assess after the arrest, not something that Lex could predict or expect from the outset with the earliest check. So Lex does his homework. He does research he perfects his plan, prepares his pitch, and when Keith comes home, Lex is there waiting for him. We don't see what happens next, but I'm a little surprised how the void in the visuals so limits the imaginations of some. It's unlikely that Lex just walked out of the room and then Keith spontaneously decides to go see Senator Finch, right? It's not like they just sat in the room silently, twiddling their thumbs, waiting for an appointment. No, of course not. It's obvious that they must have talked. And remember, under our theory, Keith was trying to get the intention of his billionaire boss, but maybe another one would do just as well as long as their agendas aligned. Lex would have to disclose how he feels about Superman and what he expects or wants Keefe to say. This is the first and essentially only opportunity for Lex to shape any of Keefe's words. It's not like Lex could keep Keefe from blurting out anything that comes to mind. Lex doesn't want to raise Keefe's suspicions or say something Keefe would know that Lex ought not to know and turn down the patsy position posing as a spokesman. Lex's pitch would obviously be what it obviously was. I saw you on TV, I was moved by your conviction, and I want to help. It wouldn't and couldn't be. I've been messing up your life ever since the BZE, and this is just more of that. So once again, the story that you'd expect consistently remains consistent with the Keefe refuse and not Lex intercept theory. To convince Keefe, Lex would have to have Keefe talk. Keefe would have to share more of himself than was shown in his arrest or his public record. And this would let Keefe know that he's being listened to and that they're on the same page. That Lex is learning about him through conversation and not because of some creepy research ahead of time. Even if Keefe didn't know that Lex had investigated him, isn't it possible that while they're getting to know one another, Keefe reveals the stack of uncashed checks or the copies of the checks with the red notes, saying, this is where I am, this is what I've been doing all along, and Lex recognizing how he could use this. So if somehow you managed to still be with me, you've probably caught on that I've actually suggested alternative answers to how Lex learns about and exploits the uncashed checks under Keefe refuse theory. There are at least two ways that Keefe refuses the checks and at least two different ways Lex learns about it. Keefe could have refused to cash the checks but not written the red notes on them or returned them. Or Keefe could have written the red notes and returned them but kept a record of what he did. Then in 
either of those cases, Lex could have learned about what Keefe did, either in breaking in and researching, or as something Keefe discloses in their discussions together. My personal preference between these options is that Keefe wrote the red notes and kept a record, and that Lex learned about it during the research phase, but all four ways work depending on how you elect to interpret the dialogue. Depending on which one you choose, you can more easily allow Lex to take credit for the notes without being responsible for the intercepted checks. Or you might understand it as parenthetically describing things that pushed Bruce over the edge without necessarily claiming credit. Regardless, Keefe agrees to Lex's pitch and is on board. He accepts the wheelchair, three suits, and an appointment with Senator Finch. The tragedy of this is that it proves that Keefe was willing to accept help from others. If Bruce had reached out earlier, had done something other than cutting a check, hadn't been blind, Keefe could have been saved. Why haven't I seen this? I didn't see it, Lowe. Standing right there and I didn't see it. Clark, there are people behind this. I'm afraid I didn't see it because I wasn't looking. The motif of sight and blindness runs throughout this film. Wake up, couldn't see, didn't see, didn't look, etc. It's the root of the word vigilante, and it could be its own show, not this one. But the next time you watch the film, make a note every time it's about eyes, sight, looking, and the like. I am running so long, I think I skipped some of the short answers. Let me just make sure I hit those two. So question, how could those notes be so insightful, accurate, and precise? Answer, everything could be plausibly written from Keefe's perspective. Remember, this is true even if you subscribe to the theory that Lex wrote all the notes, because even under that theory, Lex was writing as Keefe, with the expectation that Bruce would think it was Keefe. If you say that Keefe couldn't have possibly composed these notes, you're saying that Bruce couldn't have possibly believed that it was Keefe either, and that Lex messed up composing these notes. The film is filled with dramatic irony, so the additional meaning is just added value for the audience, not something that Keefe needs to be aware of in order to compose the notes. Question, why wouldn't anyone react to Keefe's notes? Answer, we don't know. Greg needs to investigate. It could be apathy from the top down. Question, why does Keefe say, I work for Bruce Wayne? Answer, trying to get Bruce involved and give his action authority. Question, how did Lex know about the notes? Answer, he broke in and saw them, or Keefe simply told him about them. Question, what was Lex responsible for? Answer, the last red note, the bombing, and the planting of evidence in Keefe's apartment. Question, if Lex didn't cause Batman's anger, how did he know that Batman was angry? Answer, the brandings are a pretty good indication. Knowing his secret identity helps too. <laughs> Question, how do you make sense of Lex's lines on the top of LexCorp Tower? Answer, take them literally, with as little added interpretation as possible. Okay, this is one that we need to go into just a little bit, because between the things that are more agreeable to flexible interpretation, to me, it's obvious that our understanding of these lines, as opposed to the sequence of events which requires Lex to have some sort of omniscient knowledge of the future and omnipotent control over Keefe's life, it's clear that the interpretation of these lines is the more flexible. So let's slow down just a little and look at these lines more carefully. Boy, do we have problems up here. Mm. Mm. Uh, the, mm, the problem of, of evil in the world. Mm. Uh, the problem of absolute virtue. I'll take you in without breaking you, which is more than you deserve. The problem of you on top of everything else. You above all. Ah, because that's what God is. Horus, Apollo, Jehovah, Kal-El, Clark, Joseph, 
See, what we call God depends upon our tribe, Clark Joe. Because God is tribal. God takes sides. No man in the sky intervened when I was a boy to deliver me from daddy's fists and abominations. Mm. I figured out way back. If God is all-powerful, he cannot be all-good. And if he is all-good, then he cannot be all-powerful. And neither can you be. They need to see the fraud you are. With their eyes. The blood on your hands. What have you done? And tonight, they will. Yes. Because you, my friend, have a date. Hmm. Across the bay. Ripe fruit, his hate. Two years growing, but it did not take much to push him over, actually. Little red notes. Big bang. You let your family die! And now, you will fly to him. And you will battle him. To the death. Black and blue. Fight night. The greatest gladiator match in the history of the world. God versus man. Day versus night. Son of Krypton versus Bat of Gotham. As the audience, we have the power to draw connections between what he's saying and what we know. But remember that Lex is speaking to Superman, who isn't exactly privy to the same information. Superman doesn't know what Little Red Notes or You Let Your Family Die means to the same degree that we, Bruce, or Lex do. So already, there's a disconnect between Superman and Lex here. It's almost as if Lex isn't speaking to Superman. Not to say that Lex is being nonsensical, it's clear that Lex often speaks just to hear himself talk. So the satisfaction may may simply be entirely in his own understanding. Nowhere is this more apparent than in his interactions with Senator Finch, which are barely decipherable as normal dialogue unless you know what Lex knows. Even here, and a few lines back, the dialogue could not really be considered an exchange. Lex launches into a monologue and basically ignores everything that Superman says for a solid two minutes. The first time he's directly responsive, he says, yes, I do. And even when Superman says, what have you done? Lex continues in his monologue as if Superman had said nothing. And even if we want to interpret it as Lex answering, he definitely doesn't for several lines. The answer to what have you done isn't, and tonight they will. Yes, because you, my friend, have a date. Lex is still continuing and completing his thought. They need to see the fraud that you are. This is Lex's last opportunity to confront the cause of all his consternation and express himself, so he's less concerned with answering Superman's questions than he is with saying his piece. This Disregard for normal social conversational convention is completely in character and keeping with what we've seen already. So while we naturally want to assume that Lex is answering Superman's question, like a normal person would, Lex has shown us in his conversations that he's anything but normal. He ties up his thoughts in wordplay and obscure references solely for his own delight, like giving his mind something to play with in an otherwise mundane conversation. Do we really think Lois is getting anything out of those references to Jeopardy or Euclid's Triangle? that you should not pick a fight with this person is for their benefit and not his. He knows, in mere moments, Senator Finch will be dead, so is saying, do you know what the oldest lie in America is, Senator? That power can be innocent. Really, for her benefit? For the sake of communication? Or is it really for his own pleasure? Does he think that Zod's body is going to hear him say, you flew too close to the sun, now look at you? Are his final lines meant to be clearly understood by Batman? Or again, is Lex simply lording his own knowledge over over others. So with this insight into Lex's style and pattern of speech, is it really so impossible for Lex to be on a different train of thought, a different wavelength, or an utterly different topic? When he says 
the lines that seem to be the linchpin to the Lex Intercept theory. Could it be that he isn't explicitly taking credit for all those things, but simply parenthetically listing those things which pushed Batman over the edge? What Lex literally says is, but it did not take him much to push him over, actually. He does not literally say, but it did not take me much effort to push him over, actually. So when Lex lists those things that pushed him over, they could include things that he's responsible for and things that he's not. It's purely semantic parsing, but you only get into trouble when you insert interpretation. When we insist Jack passed through a green traffic light instead of realizing that the light could have been yellow or broken or not a traffic light at all. There's nothing wrong with Keefe Refuse theory if you read the lines exactly as written. It's only when you start adding assumptions and adding in interpretations that Lex has to be taking responsibility for the little red notes, which, by the way, he still can under Keefe Refuse Theory if Keefe stockpiled the uncashed checks without returning them. Not my preferred interpretation, but it's available if you absolutely can't let go of Lex writing the notes. Look, ultimately, does it really matter? Not really. The only reason to insist on Lex Intercept is to allege that Lex planned to provoke Batman with the bombing two years prior. But the sole piece of evidence of such planning is the assumption that Lex intercepted the checks with that intention. So you can see where this is going. It's not an especially persuasive circular justification. And if you're not doing that, then this interpretation doesn't really matter. The position matters less than the process. You can completely disagree and have your reasons for differing. But the benefit is in the journey and discovery, in chewing our food and in turning over stones and uncovering new insights in the process. By taking the film at face value and addressing only inconsistencies, we have a theory of the film that gives us greater insight into Wallace Keefe, how his downfall was completely plausible up until his arrest without a mastermind behind it. And simply studying his life, his psychology, and his statements, we can better understand his anger, his betrayal, and his desperation. By treating Keefe's protests and comments and checks as if they were art, seeking answers and understanding, instead of simply dismissing them as insane ranting, we got insights into how he sees Bruce. And we got insight into Bruce's blind spot as a billionaire vigilante who solves all his problems with money or fists, either in gambling or fancy soirees, or in the bat suit with fancy gadgets. He didn't see Keefe because he didn't look, which in turn illuminates the motifs and parallels about sight and blindness for future study. Then, instead of taking our assumptions about Lex's lines for granted, in attempting to reconcile them with Keefe's responsibility, we gained insight into Lex's style of non-communication and one-sided speech, intended almost entirely for his own ears. Looking for patterns in Lex's behavior, we found that he has a penchant for turning the efforts of others to his own advantage, rather than coming up with everything from scratch, showing that he's completely comfortable piggybacking off of others, a trait that makes him well-suited for future team-ups and co-villain roles. An opportunist and manipulator makes him someone easy to fit into any story. By reasoning things out, we figured out why Bruce was on that wall along with Superman and his wife. And apparently, he hates Penn and Teller, too. <laughs> That's the Three of Clubs. Ask me about it some other time. Okay, I know I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son.